let's uh, let's pray one more time before we sit. Loving God, many of us have felt um, just the intensity of, of a broken world in the last week. We have felt moments of sadness or grief or fear. We've felt division with our neighbor as we disagree about how to move forward in the world together as a society or a country or a community or a neighborhood or a family. Uh, I suspect too many of us have had some really beautiful moments in the week leading up to now, whether with people we love or in our work. Uh, all of that coexists in this moment for us. We, we bring all of it into this moment here. The wounds we carry, the hopes that we have, the joys that we have felt, the ways that we have wept, the ways that we want to run from what is broken and the ways that it has just come crashing into our lives in ways that we cannot ignore. And so we are grateful uh, for the conviction you've given us that all of that belongs. All of that is held together here in who we are and who you are and what we're becoming together. So ultimately, we thank you, God, for this moment. And we ask you to, to teach us how it is that we would live out your heart in the world, to weep when you weep, to work where you work, to hope in what you teach us to hope for, and to move into the future together. And we pray it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. You can have a seat. And if you want, you can grab uh, the scripture insert that is in your program there. It says Acts on top. Can I confess to you that um, I have worked harder saying acts than like anything in my entire career preaching. It's very hard. It's not acts, it's acts. Just so you know where my head's been. Um, hey, we, I, I've been struck at um, just all the surprises that are waiting for us in this text. I don't know if you felt that way. Um, I've read the story of the early church many times. This is the people who had followed Jesus. This is the life they lived right after they had been with Jesus. And I've just been struck all over this text at the surprises that it has for us. And I've been struck at how profoundly connected it is to the world we live in today. Have you felt that? In fact, in some ways, I think um, there are certain things about the world that we're living in today that make it easier for us to connect with like the story that we're gonna look at tonight. It's actually more connected to the world we're in today than maybe the world that most of us were living in even 20 years ago. Because what, like, what we're gonna look at tonight is Paul steps into Athens. Athens is this sort of swirling place of connection where different ideas are being knocked around. This is where you have the philosophers, right? This is the place of Aristotle and Socrates, right? I mean, this is, this is a really important place that births some really profound conversations about what it means to be human and how to move forward in the world. And then you have this Jewish Christian dude who shows up in the middle of all of that, and I suspect he maybe felt a little, like, all tossed around. And I don't know about you, but that, that feels like the world we live in today more than maybe the world we were living in 20 years ago, even. Like, like, we do live in a world today where you are way more likely to be confronted with somebody else's very different idea of how to be human or how to relate to God or what to think about God than you were 20 or 30 years ago. 20 or 30 years ago, maybe you lived in your neighborhood where everybody was a white Protestant or Angela, who's the only, like, the second black Catholic I've ever known, kind of. <laughs> I don't know, but like, like you, you could live in your little tribe, right? And you could go to work with your tribe, and you could worship with your tribe, and you'd never be confronted with a lot of ideas that don't come from your tribe. And now we live in a world where it just feels like the tribal lines are all really 
sort of muddled, right? And so you go to work with somebody who believes very differently from you, or you listen to a podcast, or you hear a news report, or you watch a YouTube video, or it just feels like things are kind of colliding in interesting and sometimes really difficult ways, right? Well, that, that actually makes this text really helpful for me, because I think Paul's living in a world where a lot of that's going on as this Jesus story is just breaking in. And it really helps me think about the world that we're living in today. So we're going to get into it. And I just want to, today, there's not like any sophistication to this. We're just going to kind of move through the text together and make some observations and see if it does anything as we think about it, okay? So let's just jump right into this. So this is Paul the Apostle. Um, He's been moving around the Mediterranean world, and he's been bringing the story of Jesus wherever he goes. And now Paul's in Athens. And while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, some of his companions, he's greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, depending on your relationship to that word or Bible talk, maybe idol has a lot of meaning or little meaning or you just think of American idol. I don't know, right? Let's talk about that word for a second because I think it's um, easy to feel distance because we're not of a time and place where people carve little like wooden statuettes of strange gods or whatever and kneel down to them in the corner of their house. At least most of us that come from a sort of American Christian background, that's not like a normal thing, right? But if you just go like one layer underneath that, it becomes really easy to connect with this impulse. So like these people, just like people a thousand years before them and just like people today, we have these same basic sort of anxieties, right? These same basic like angst inside, like am I going to make it? Am I going to be okay? What happens when I don't know, I'm a farmer and and the weather changes dramatically and it ruins my crops and I'm really in a tight place, right? Or what happens when the economy crashes and I work in Elkhart Manufacturing and I had nothing to do with the crash, but here I am, I can't find a job anywhere, right? Or having kids would be not only like great and fun and joyful, but like really important because kids ultimately support you in your older age and there just seem to be things about that process that are out of our control and for some of us it works and for some it doesn't. Those anxieties are there just as much as they're here. All this angst, right? Like, am I going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? And what do you do if you're not sure you're going to be okay? You look for something to trust, right? Something to appease. You hope there is some kind of higher power, some, something, some system, some being, some deity, some, something that you can trust. And then if you relate to that something in the right way, you hope that you will be Okay, as far as I can tell, like, that's where idols come from, whether they're like little wooden things that are carved in pagan cultures or whether it's the things that you and I idolize today. Like, there's that job, and it keeps whispering to you, and it keeps saying, just one more promotion, and you will finally feel whole. Just, just one more rung on the ladder of success, and you will finally know that your dad approves of you. <laughs> Just one more step of success, you'll finally have your in-laws approve of you, <laughs> you know? Just, um, man, just one more sexual escapade to make me feel a little less alone inside because that loneliness, it feels like a threat inside. It feels like a poison inside. I just got to find a way to keep it away. Work, sex, relationship, entertainment. I mean, go on and on. Like, I don't know what it is for you. I know what they are for me. These, these things that we turn to to trust, these patterns, behaviors, these external realities, even ways of relating to God that like we, we hope if I just relate correctly, I'll be made whole, I'll be okay, I won't have to wonder or worry quite so much. I think that's where this kind of stuff comes from, right? And Paul's in Athens and he sees all these very physical 
very obvious examples of a culture that's very religious. They, very, like they, they have rituals and rites. They have temples everywhere to different gods. They have different ways of systematizing this and working it out. They're very religious, and he sees it, and he's distressed. And when I read that, I, I have to admit, first of all, I know that in my life, I am often way too comfortable with my idols. They don't distress me. They're my buddies. You know what I mean? Like they, I, I coddle them. I, I cultivate them. I have things I turn to, patterns, behaviors, exterior sources of affirmation, encouragement. We have them. And I know for me, I read this and I think, I wonder if I should be more distressed about my own idols. And then there's the world that we live in. And good grief, just, just look around for a little bit. Ask yourself, where do you see people trusting something that can't deliver on its promise? Right? Where do you see people trusting something that makes like, like a heart promise, like an existential promise to you, like you're going to be okay. Trust me, I'll make sure you're okay. Have you ever seen people trusting something in the world around them? And, and I think there's so much of it actually that the easy thing to do is ignore it, forget it's there. I mean, it's really, really prevalent. Like spend a day on Facebook, you'll see some idle stuff going on, right? Like just listen in your workplace, in your home, in your school, you'll see some idle stuff going on. And the easy thing is to not be distressed to be numb, to just sort of disregard and move on, right? But Paul, he's sensitive to it, and his heart is sort of broken open by what he sees. Now, uh, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, and this seems to be Paul's pattern in the ancient world. He would, he would go to different places to spread the story of Jesus, the good news, right, of resurrection and of God's grace and love and the fact that God showed up in the flesh. He would go around to these different places, and he would always start at the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles or the Greeks who were there. And then he would also go in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. We could spend all night on, like, who, who they are and where they're coming from, but these are two schools of thought about not just philosophy, but really two different ways of being human in the world. And they come and they dispute with him. Some of them ask, what's this babbler trying to say? And by the way, that's a really beautiful word. The image there, the word for babbler, it comes from a bird that they had that would just keep picking up seed everywhere. This is your friend that every three days is like, they have a new conspiracy theory. And you're like, where do you get this stuff? And they're like, on the internet? I read it on the internet, it's true. Like, just a person who has no filters, no discernment, no discrimination, they just keep picking up crazy ideas. That's the word they're using here for a babbler, okay? So he, is this babbler, what's he trying to say? Others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Uh, they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they, asked, or they said to him, may we know what this new thing is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Doesn't that sound familiar? Like, do you feel the kind of like this affinity for this context? You feel like there's something about our world that relates here, right? So he gets to this place with these people at the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is both a place, like a bit of a, a hilltop, and it's also the group that meets at the place. And so there's a debate whether he went to the place or not. It doesn't really matter. Point is, he's with these people who are this sort of council of, of religious thinkers. They kind of get to vet the religious things that are going on in Athens. And so if you really want to do it right, you go before them and you're like, hey, let's add another god to the pantheon. Let's just add one more. That'll be great, right? And that's, that's, uh, that's what these guys kind of do. They deliberate on whether what you're bringing to the table should be added and whether it's a threat or whatever. So Paul's there. And, um, and I'm just, I'm like tuning in so much, right? Because this is one of the rare times in the New Testament where we see um, 
where we see like, okay, so let's say you're a Jew in Jerusalem and Jesus is a Jew who also was in Jerusalem, right? So the cultural distance between you and this Christian story isn't quite as far as let's say you're a Gentile in Jerusalem. Well, now you have a little bit more distance between you and the story and the, the details of the story, right? Well, let's say you're a Gentile living like far away from Jerusalem, a little more disconnected from that culture. You got a little more distance, right? Well, let's say you're nowhere near Jerusalem. You don't hang out with those crazy Semitic Jewish people and their weird Eastern customs. You're in a really cosmopolitan place like Athens, and you do these very sophisticated things like these temple rites. You got a lot of distance there, right? And right now, like, there, in some ways, there's more and more distance. There's kind of cultural distance growing between a time and place where like, everybody identified as Christian, whether they were or not, right? And the, the moment we're living in now, where there's a lot of different identities and different views and all of that. And I just, I'm like tuning in. I'm like, how is Paul going to handle this, right? Like, does he, does he throw the Bible at him? I mean, they didn't really have those to throw at the point that he was in, right? But like, I'm curious, right? Like, how is he going to handle this? How is he going to interact with them? Does he like, hold on now. Does he say like, you know, Greece was a Christian nation and we got to win it back. <laughs> just asking, right? Like, like, what's going on here? Like, let's just, what's his approach to this whole thing? I, I don't mean to be... I don't mean to be obnoxious about that, but I want to just raise, there's all these possibilities about how he would approach this, think about how you might approach it, and then pay close attention and see what he does. So he stands up and he says, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And this seems to be him kind of flattering them. He's like kind of lifting them up a little bit. He says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did that so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Let's just kind of call time out there because there's, there's a few things going on. So, um, so he says, like, I see you're religious, which is a nice way, I think, of saying I, I've seen all of your idolatry. I've seen all of the physical signs and symbols of all these wayward directions that your affections and your trust goes, right? I've seen it, he says. And he says, in the middle of that, I saw an altar to an unknown God, and I want to tell you about him. This is really interesting to me, because I think often in the world we live in, when Christians try to approach the world, we see the idolatry, right? We see all the wayward affections, all the misplaced allegiances, the ways that trusting things that can't deliver on their promises destroy us. We see that, right? And so then we just kind of like, like, kind of like take a sledgehammer to the whole thing, right? We're, you know, like it's just it kind of pure condemnation, right? Paul's kind of nuanced here. He says, in the middle of your idolatry, in the middle of your idolatry, I see an earnest desire, a seeking for the living God right there mixed into the middle of your idolatry. It's not neat and tidy. It's all sort of crowded in to the same space here. All of your misplaced affection and worship. And right in the middle of that, I also see that you are, you're directing something within you toward the living God who made you and loves you and wants you to reach out to him. 
that, that's, that's been working on me all week. Like, first of all, I wonder in my idolatry, I wonder in what ways are the things that I idolize, the misplaced trust that I give, the things I worship that I shouldn't, I wonder in what ways my own idolatry is, is just like screaming at me about the hunger inside I have for the, for the divine, for the real, for, for the substance of who God really is. Like, I wonder how that's present in my own idolatry. And I wonder for the people I love. Because you see the people you love and they give their hearts to certain kinds of idolatry and sometimes it is destroying them. And so sometimes we come at our friends and we, what we want to do is we just want to say something helpful and true and say, hey, there's an idolatry here. There's a, man, you're just trusting the wrong things and they are destroying you. But we don't always have eyes to see that maybe right there in the middle of their idolatry, maybe like embedded within it is some kind of desire for the living God who made them, loves them, and wants them to reach out to him. And this is kind of like last week. To me, it's Paul doing discernment work, right? There's not like a black and white, like, okay, this is Athens and it's all pagan and it's all bad. You just need to reject all of it and condemn all of it, right? And it's not just an unthinking acceptance. Like, okay, it's all good and it's all fine and just kind of like slip your God into the middle with the rest of them. Add that temple to the rest of them because Paul doesn't do that. He says, no, in the middle of all your idolatry, there, there is something going on here and I want to talk to you about it because there is a, a God, a divine, a, a, a reality that you were birthed from that gives life to all of this, a source for all of this. And he desires that you would actually reach out to him and know him, that you would live in connection with that and he's done what it takes, in fact, for that sort of thing to happen, right? Um, I mean, this, like, in all the ways that we approach our neighbors, the world around us, this just works on me a lot. Like, in what ways are we sort of the black or white types? Uh, I tend to vacillate. I tend to be, like, like very critical, and, like, I'll, you know, I'll be um, very narrow, and I kind of come at the world around me, and I'll look at things that may in fact be good and right in a person's life, but I, all I can see is their idolatry, and so the whole thing's waste for me. And I, I don't know how to see clearly that the thing that God is doing in their life to sort of stir up that desire and draw them to him, right? And other times, I don't like being the critical one, and so I run the other way, and I just kind of go for like it's, it's an all-good approach. And I, I sort of like turn a blind eye to the idols, and I, I don't, I, I'm afraid of being critical, and I don't want to be that guy because I was that guy way too much for way too long. And like... I think what we have to do is grow in discernment, like we said last week. Like, we've got to be the people who know how to look around the world and to the people we love and even to our own lives and sense within our idolatries, where is there something of God going on? Where is there some hunger, some desire, some magnet in our chest that is drawing us toward God? And what could we do to name it and celebrate it and then connect that to the story of Jesus? That's what Paul does here. It's interesting, by the way, that he, he never actually names Jesus at all in this passage, which, like, I took evangelism and discipleship at Bethel, and I would have failed if I would have proposed that, I think. Like, don't even mention Jesus. Just kind of do the God thing, right? I mean, he refers to him, right? But he talks about, um, oh, did I edit that part out? Did I not get to it? Sorry. Sorry? Oh, yeah, thank you. I think it might have been the very next passage here. He refers to Jesus, the man that God has raised up, but he doesn't give his name, and it's just super interesting. And this is just my subtle way of saying you should read it more at home. Okay? <laughs> so thanks, Ryan. Let's pick up here. As some of your own poets have said, now watch this, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, 
We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. And guys, I just remembered there's stuff on the back. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, this quote, we are, your, we are his offspring. This blows my mind too. So this is a quote that we can track down. This goes back from years before Paul. And there's a, a Greek philosopher poet. I think the way you pronounce the name is Aratus, A-R-A-T-U-S. And this is literally lifting a line from a work that he had written. And here's the, the thing that blows my mind, guys. It's a poem that's written in homage to Zeus. So Paul's there bringing the good gospel, the, the word about Jesus, and he looks to the devotion and adoration that this sort of pagan culture has shown to Zeus, and he seems to think it's appropriate to, to lift that language and make some kind of connection between that thing that they're doing with, Zeus is kind of the arch god, the big god of the gods of the, of the Greeks, right? And to kind of throw that in here and, and start to sort of use that to open things up and talk about the Jesus story and the, the one God who makes everything and holds everything together. This is interesting to me because, like, for example, we're moving into a world where there is more and more likelihood that you have a neighbor who has a different word for God. Right? We speak English, we say God, which isn't a very, like, specific word. It's kind of generic, actually. Right? God. Um, we don't say Yahweh very often, which is the way the Hebrew people came to think of the name of their God. Um, we live in a world where Christians debate about when a Muslim bows their knee and prays to Allah. Christians like write lots of books and lots of blog posts and argue all day long about whether there's anything in that that we should affirm or whether we have to condemn it 100% all the time, always. Like, are we, do we have any permission to, to look within that devotion and wonder if some part of that, if something going on there if something going on there is not unlike these Greeks who in the middle of, of, of other sort of forms in worship and objects of worship, in the middle of a different picture of God or a different understanding of God, Paul seems to think it's really appropriate to say in the middle of all that, that poem that you wrote to Zeus, amen, baby. And I, I, I want to I press into this a little bit because it's interesting. That prayer you prayed to Allah, I'm not saying that like, it's our job to judge that all the way one way or another, but I think the idea that we would look at that kind of a prayer and say there is nothing there that has anything to do with God in any way and the whole thing is too far away and it's all completely hellbound. Like, all I'm saying is like, read the text. And there he is. He grabs Zeus from their pagan poetry that goes to the pagan God. And he says, we are his offspring. Amen. Absolutely. Let's keep talking about that. That's super inspiring to me, guys. Uh, I hope that messes with some of us. I'm just going to leave it there, okay? <laughs> let's, uh, let's turn to the back here and see how he wraps this up. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. There's the Jesus thing I was looking for. <laughs> He's given proof to this, to all, or of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Amaris, and a number of others. Paul had a good day at the Areopagus. And it's like juicy and interesting and super complicated to me to think about what it means to learn something from Paul about how to interact with the world that we live in today, right? But a few things are really clear to me. Like, back to the question, what's a church? If we're taking our cue from the story of Acts, what's a church? Well, one thing a church is certainly is a church is a group of people who are sensitive to the idols in our world. 
the ones that we bow down to, and the ones that are destroying the people that we love. We're the people who don't turn a blind eye or just pretend that everything is okay because there are idols in the world today and they cannot deliver on their promises, right? What's a church? Church seems to be people who are discerning as they move through the world. Where in the midst of all that idolatry is there an earnest seeking for God? Where in the midst of those misplaced trusts is there something that we could celebrate and affirm, like a little spark of a fire that we could nurture, that we could sort of grow into like a raging heat of desire for the living God who loves them and wants them to reach out to him, right? What's a church? We're the ones who, who are comfortable with the messy gray questions of a world where different religions are colliding, and we're super clear on Jesus at the center of our story and how we understand God, but I'm pretty sure that sometimes that means we actually get to have the confidence to go into gray, messy, complicated questions with neighbors who use different words and have different ideas about what it means to be human and know God. We, we can actually have some confidence in those things. Not that we're going to get it right necessarily, but that we can move into those spaces and, and look for God in unexpected places, right? Even if they have different words for it, different rituals for it, different ways of putting the pieces together. And then we can be the ones who, more than anything else, preach resurrection again and again and again. It's interesting. If you look at the like, apostolic teaching of the church in the book of Acts, you see like resurrection as the centerpiece again and again. They say one thing we are like, absolutely clear on. He went into a grave and he came out of it. And that doesn't just vindicate him, but it's really good news. Because by the way, like, what are all those anxieties really about, right? Remember those anxieties that draw us toward our idols? Those inner fears that draw us toward the corporate ladder or the sex life that's really not helping you or drinking way too much or numbing yourself with the entertainment or whatever. Like, what are those inner anxieties? Like, at some level, aren't they really about the fact that we know we will die? At some level, like, isn't all of that in some way about the fact that we know that we are finite, that there's an end to us, and we're looking for all these ways that we can protect ourselves from facing that very thing, and he comes along and says, you don't even have to be afraid of that. And if there's one thing that will liberate a person from an idol, it's preaching resurrection because it says you don't have to fear those anxieties that drive you to bow down to the wrong things, right? I feel like I threw a lot at us tonight. There's a lot there. So here's what I thought we would do. Um, we're almost done for the night, but how about a couple of minutes to just reflect however you want to. So a couple of minutes of silence. I'm going to pray and then a couple of minutes of silence. And you could just use this time to listen internally. Maybe you haven't heard your own thoughts all day long. I don't know, because it was busy and then Jason wouldn't shut up. Uh, you know what I mean? So like a couple of minutes of silence just to reflect. And then um, as soon as that's done, uh, when the time is right, Dan and the team, they've got a song that's just sort of meant to help us press a little further into reflecting. And then we'll be about done for the night before we transition to hanging out and all that stuff. But let's pray. Loving God, I'm so grateful that this isn't just words on a page. But the, it's like you have breathed into these words something more than black and white. You've breathed into these words something more than just marks on a paper. You have breathed into these words, and it feels like through them you might be breathing into us. And so that's what we pray for today. Um, convict us of our idols, God. May we be distressed. Let us see the idols around us for what they are, that they are failing to live up to the promises they've made to those we love. Let us 
look out into the world around us and discover that so often in the middle of the idolatry there is this longing, this yearning, this aching, this moving toward you. Let us be the ones who see it and name it and celebrate it. But then who know um, what it is to invite others into what we are learning through Jesus, the, the good news of resurrection and the promise of a life that is in union with you. So God, we thank you. Um, and in this quiet, sacred space, this moment, I pray you just lead and work and do whatever you want to do. In the name of Jesus, the resurrected one. Amen. Tried to keep you in a tent, could not keep you in a temple. Any of their idols to see and understand. Cannot keep you in a church, cannot keep you in a Bible. It's 
just another idol to box you in could not keep you in their walls cannot keep you in ours either you are so much greater who is like the lord the maker of the heavens who dwells with the poor he lifts them from the ashes and seats them among princes who is like the lord tried to keep you in our tents tried to keep you in our temples worshiped all our idols we want all that to end we will find you in the streets we will find you in the prisons and even in our bibles and churches who is like the the maker of the heavens who dwells with the poor he lifts them from the ashes and seats them among princes who is like the lord and we cannot contain can not contain the glory of your name. We cannot contain, cannot contain the glory of your We started by singing glory to God. So would you stand with us as you're able?
our gatherings with just this simple back and forth I say grace and peace to you and you say also to you so, grace and peace to you amen well hang out uh, grab some snacks the bar will open in just a minute and we think this is a, an equally important part of the night so enjoy mm -hmm. 